0: As the kids are making their way to their classes, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Revelation chapter 11. We started into chapter 11 last week, and you can get very far. We covered two verses. Lord willing, we will make a little bit more progress this morning. In those two verses, we saw the measuring of the temple, which we saw was a picture of... The today the temple the altar and those who were worshiping there were measured with a measuring rod symbolizing God's ownership and protection of us the church marking us out God marking us out as his own but the outer court we were told was not measured and this was also a picture of the church but a picture of the church unprotected and vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. One of the questions is, does this mean that part of the church will be protected and part of the church not? That's a good question. The answer is no, that's not what that means. What we see in both the, the temple and the, the, the altar and the outer court being measured are symbolic pictures of the entire church, not just part of it. And so it's not that there are some in the church will be protected and some that won't. But instead, the entire church will be spiritually protected through the tribulation. But also, the entire church will be exposed and vulnerable to the attack of the enemy and the unbelieving world through persecution. And yet, though the church will be attacked, she will persevere. And she will be protected spiritually through that tribulation. And God will see fit that the church will endure the tribulation and the attacks, even though some may be martyred. And we also saw last week that the nations will overrun the holy city or the entire church, and will trample her. We're told for forty-two months or three and a half years. We saw in those two pictures of the church a. Fulfillment of the little scroll of chapter ten that John was told to eat the, the scroll of prophecy of that which was to come and we see symbolized in that passage from last week that that scroll is both bitter as well as it's sweet as honey in the mouth but bitter in the stomach that the church. is is a bitter prophecy but that the church would ultimately two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the lord of the earth and if anyone will harm them fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes if anyone would harm them this is how he is doomed to be killed they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit shall make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at, the hour, at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together this morning. As we think and revel in that privilege, we recognize, Father, the sacrifice of so many who have put their lives on the line, literally, in uniform and as first responders to ensure that that privilege of ours remains intact. And Father, we pause to thank you for the sacrifice of so many that we marked yesterday with the 20th anniversary of the attacks on the World Trade Center. Father, we lift up those families who, even today, are still mourning the loss of their loved ones. We pray. Father, for the many thousands who walked away from that incident with both physical and emotional scars, we pray that you would meet them in the middle of their need. Father, we thank you for their sacrifice, and we remember them this morning in prayer. Father, now as we turn to your word, we're thankful not only that we get to gather in this place and worship you in spirit and in truth, So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving this book throughout the ages such that we can trust that what we hold in our hands is your very breath. It is your word. And as your word, Father, you intend for it to edify and build up your church. And so we pray that you would do that this morning, Father, that you would use the words of this book, not necessarily my words, but your words, Lord, To encourage, to edify, to challenge, to correct, and Father, to present the good news of Jesus Christ to those who desperately need to hear it. So Father, we ask that you do that this morning through this passage, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 11 can be divided into two very clear sections. First of all, verses 3 through 6 is the The witnessing ministry of these two witnesses. The prophesying ministry that is taking place as uh, John describes it here. And then in verses 7 through 14 that we just read, we see the opposition to them, the death of them, and the resurrection of these two witnesses. But let's go ahead and deal with the elephant in the room. Who are they? Who are these two witnesses And what do they represent for us in this book? There are generally two ways of understanding who these two witnesses are. Some will say that they are two historical figures that both John and his original audience would have recognized. And certainly there's much in John's description here of these two witnesses about who they are and what they do, that remind us of Old Testament characters. Most predominantly, perhaps, we see here allusions to Moses and to the prophet Elijah. Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets, and so together they represent the the fullness of the Hebrew scriptures of that day, as well as representing all of Israel herself as the people of God. But we see lots of allusions to them in what the two witnesses do in this chapter. In the fire that comes out of their mouth in verse 5, we see an allusion to the prophet Elijah. The story from 2 Kings chapter 1, where the prophet Elijah calls down fire from heaven to consume his enemies, the soldiers of the northern kingdom that King Ahaziah had sent To kill him. We also recall the story of Elijah from 1 Kings chapter 17 when Elijah tells King Ahab that it would not rain, it's not going to rain in Israel for three years except by his word, except by his prophecy, the prophecy of Elijah. And so Elijah was given the authority to shut the skies so that it would not rain just as these witnesses are given the ability to do in verse 6. Also in verse 6 we see this turning of the waters into blood, which of course reminds us of the first plague of Egypt where Moses struck his staff to the Nile River and it became as blood. And then we're also told at the end of verse 6 that these two witnesses had the ability to strike the earth with any of the plagues as often as they wish, which is also an allusion to Moses himself, uh, whom God used to inflict all of the 10 plagues on Egypt. So many would say that this is, in fact, Moses and Elijah, who will one day return to the earth and will prophesy and witness to their testimony and proclaim it to the people. Others say that instead of this being two historical figures that that this instead is just two figures two eschatological figures uh, that don't have any historical referent um, that don't refer to any kind of historical figure that anybody would recognize they're just two people two prophets who come down to earth in these last days and will proclaim god's word during the tribulation will prophesy for twelve hundred sixty days now regardless of whether they are historical figures or whether they're just two eschatological figures who have no historical referent, regardless, both of these interpretations point to these things as happening in the future, that these are things that are going to happen later on in the real world at a future time of intense tribulation. And this is one plausible way, whether it's historical or just Um, eschatological figures this is one plausible way of understanding this text this interpretation relies heavily on a literal approach to this kind of prophecy it says that there are two witnesses and so there must be two witnesses right and if it says that fire pours out of their mouth in order to consume the foes then fire must pour out of their mouth in order to consume the foes when it says that they have the power to shut the sky so that it doesn't rain, that's what they do. When it says that they have the power to turn the water into blood, that's what they do. According to this interpretation, a literal beast, a monster will come up out of the bottomless pit, will make war on them and will kill them. But in three and a half days, in three and a half days, God will breathe life into them. They will stand up and the people will respond with great fear and then a loud voice will be heard. Come up here and they will ascend to heaven in a cloud. And then there will be a literal earthquake where 7,000 people in Jerusalem die. Now, interpreting Revelation literally is not really that hard, right? If we interpret all of this literally, then whatever it says will happen is exactly what will happen. Now, if you're one, here's, here's a caution, if, if you're one, like myself, that, that doesn't necessarily agree that everything in Revelation should be interpreted literally, don't let the reason be because there are such fantastic things that are occurring. That shouldn't be the reason why we don't affirm that. All we have to do is go back to the first pages of the book of Genesis and see that before there was anything, God was... And then he spoke the world into existence. He spoke and there was land. He spoke and there was water. He spoke and there was stars and the sun and all of that and life. All we have to do is if we can wrap our mind around creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, then seeing these fantastic things that happen in the end times is not going to be difficult. So that should not be the reason why one doesn't affirm a literal interpretation of this. Instead, it should be for other reasons. In my study of apocalyptic literature, I've come to the conclusion that a literal interpretation is not always the best way to approach this. The apocalyptic genre is intentionally figurative and symbolic. Now some have said, and I've I've heard this before, that a good rule for interpreting revelation is that you should interpret it literally unless you're given good reason to interpret it in a symbolic way. In other words, interpret everything literally unless you can't. And and if you can't, then, then you're forced to interpret it symbolically. But I think that ignores the fundamental purpose and design and the, and the form even of apocalyptic literature. So in my opinion, perhaps a, a better rule would be to interpret Revelation symbolically as it was written, as it was intended, unless you can't. Unless there's a good reason to interpret it literally. So perhaps this vision is not telling us that, we're, that there will literally be two superhuman witnesses who prophesy in Jerusalem for three and a half years, who are then killed by the Antichrist, and after three and a half days, God resurrects them and brings them up to heaven. Maybe so. Maybe that's exactly what happens, and that is a perfectly legitimate and biblically defendable way of understanding this. But perhaps this is symbolically trying to communicate something else to us. So the other major way in which this vision is interpreted is to see in these two witnesses a symbolic picture of the church, just as we saw last week in the temple, the altar, and those who worship there in the first two verses. Now there are some very good reasons to consider as to why the two witnesses here in chapter 11 should be understood symbolically to be referring to the church. Let me just give you four of them. First of all, we're told that they are; uh, these are the two lampstands. Now, the word lampstands has already been used in Revelation back in chapter one to refer to the church, and so it just stands to reason that if the lampstand refers to the church in chapter one, then it might also refer to the church here in chapter eleven. A second reason is to maintain interpretive consistency. Okay. It stands to reason that if we interpret the temple and the altar and all of that symbolically in, in verses 1 and 2, then we should use that same interpretive approach in verses 3 and following. Why would we interpret verses 1 and 2 symbolically and then turn around and interpret verses 3 through 14 literally? That's a good question. That would seem to be interpretive inconsistency. Remember we said last week that the identical period of time links these two. 42 months in verse 2, 1260 days in verse 3. Both of them referring to the same amount of time, approximately three and a half years. This this links those two stories and so it would seem strange to interpret them differently and to use a different interpretive approach. Thirdly, uh, witnessing and testifying are activities elsewhere in the book of Revelation that are activities that are linked to the church. These are the activities of the church. This is the mission of the church, to witness and to testify. And so the fact that these are two witnesses whose job it is to testify is another good argument for understanding them as referring to the church. And then a fourth reason, down in verse 7, when they're killed by the Antichrist, We're told that their bodies will lie in the streets for three and a half days and that the the earth dwellers will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be buried. But what doesn't come out in our English translations but does in the original Greek is that that word for dead bodies in the Greek is singular. It's not plural. It's not dead bodies. It's dead body. And so perhaps the reference, why would two witnesses who die be referred to as one dead body? Perhaps that's another argument for it referring to the church. Now you might say, well then why is there two of them? Why are there two witnesses? Why didn't uh, John just see one witness? Why are there two uh, olive trees and two lampstands and two witnesses? And I think that's a reference back to Deuteronomy. And according to Deuteronomic law, in order to confirm the testimony, there needed to be two witnesses. And so perhaps this is a reference to this being a true and confirmed testimony that they are giving because there are two witnesses. Now of those who understand the two witnesses as referring symbolically to the church they're divided as well. right? Some of them think that this this is referring to the church of today, the church of the present, the church during the church age. Others think that this is referring to the church in the end times, the church in the future, during the time of the tribulation. And so uh, those who think that this refers to the church of today, the church of the present, understand this is a picture showing that the job of the church is to witness to the world And certainly that's true, testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of God. And that the world considers that torment, and so the world opposes that. The fire coming out of their mouths, that brings us back to that picture of Jesus in chapter 1. The vision of Jesus that John has with the the double-edged sword coming out of Jesus' mouth which we said at that time was a reference to the word of God. And so for for them, this is fire coming out of their mouth. So this is reference to the word of God that must be prophesied, must be spoken, must be spoken out by the church. But as we speak forth the word of God, and as we speak forth the gospel, we're opposed and persecuted. And some of the witnesses of the church are even killed because of that faithful testimony but in the end as we see the lord will resurrect those who have been faithful witnesses and so this viewpoint would say that this vision is given to john here and and in this vision that john is given here he sees two witnesses and it's not actually telling us something about what's going to happen in the future but instead it's telling the church of today that our job as witnesses, is to faithfully proclaim God's word, the word of truth, to a world that's going to oppose us for our testimony. And in some cases, that opposition will be violent. On the other hand, there are those who think that though these two witnesses refer to the church, they refer to the church of the future, not the church of today, that this is actually telling us about the experience of the church one day in the Great Tribulation. And that church will do much the same thing. Will faithfully proclaim the gospel, will be opposed by the world violently, killed, and then resurrected by God. But regardless of whether we see this as referring to the church of today or the church of tomorrow and the in the future in the tribulation, seeing these two witnesses as symbolically referring to the church Certainly seems to fit the idea that we talked about last week of the little scroll containing both a sweet and a bitter prophecy. Just like in verses 1 and 2, the sweetness of the prophecy is that we're measured by God, we're marked out by God as His, and that He will spiritually protect us. But the bitterness of the prophecy is that ultimate spiritual protection and victory, that pathway to that is paved with suffering and tribulation and persecution and even martyrdom. And in much the same way, in these verses now, the bitterness of the prophecy is that we will be opposed when we proclaim God's word. And in some cases, even martyred because of our message. That's the bitterness of the prophecy. But the sweetness of the prophecy is that we will be resurrected and that we will be vindicated in the end. So that also is a very plausible and perfectly biblically defendable understanding of this text. So I think we've got a couple of decisions to make. Here are the decisions that we have to make if we are to understand what this is referring to. First of all, is this vision of the two witnesses describing for us actual events? Like like as John is describing this, as he's talking about this vision is he talking about something that's actually going to happen in the future or is this vision just a symbolic lesson for the church of today to proclaim the word of God and to know that we will be opposed if we say that it's an actual event well then it can also be a lesson for us today if we say that this is describing something that's going to happen in the future in the tribulation, it can also symbolically be a lesson for the church today. Of course it is. It is for us. It was for the first century church. But if we say that this is just a symbolic lesson, well then it it can't also be an actual event in the future because we're saying that it's only symbolic, right? Right? So that's the first decision that we have to make. And my personal opi- opinion is that what we have in this vision is a description of action that they're going to happen in the future. And th- the fact that they haven't happened yet, in my opinion, means that they're going to happen in the future. And so this is a description of something that's actually going to happen in the tribulation leading up to the return of Christ. Others say that what we have here points symbolically to what happened either in the first century or what has been happening in the church age between the advents of Christ. And that's a very plausible, perfectly biblically defendable position to take. It's just not one that I find particularly convincing. So I think what John sees in this vision is something that is actually going to happen. So that leads to the second decision that we have to face. And that is, if this is describing actual events, then what do they look like? And again, our options are limited. It's either literal or symbolic. right It's either two guys that are going to stand up and prophesy for three and a half years in Jerusalem, or this is symbolically referring to the church, that these two witnesses refer to the church, the people of God, in the tribulation. And while both of those are possible, and again, biblically defendable, I prefer the latter, that the two witnesses refer to the church. In the future, during the time of great tribulation leading up to the return of Christ. But again, either of those are possible, and we'll just wait and see, right? We, we we will wait and see which one actually happens. But regardless, whether this is talking about two literal prophets who witness in the tribulation, or whether it's talking about the church, it's symbolically talking about the church who will witness in the tribulation. Regardless. Both of them should represent to us today the witness of the church today, our witness to the world around us. Certainly, I believe that's how John's original audience would have understood this passage. They would have read this passage through their own cultural lens, through the lens of what was happening in their day and in their time. They were being persecuted. And some of them were being martyred. They were being killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And this vision would have encouraged them, would have encouraged them to continue to be bold in their witness, to continue to courageously stand up and give a defense for their faith, even if it meant persecution and martyrdom. But just as God vindicated the two witnesses in this vision, so God would one day vindicate them in the resurrection. And this is not just the mission of the church in the first century. We we know this to be the mission of the church in the 21st century. We, like they, are opposed. And we're opposed because of our message. Our message is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But that good news is is offensive it tells people that they are sinners it tells people that they are not good enough they're not good enough for heaven they're not good enough to warrant salvation it tells them that they are dead in their trespasses and sins and that what they deserve is and that they are impotent powerless To change that hopeless condition by themselves. That's offensive. Who wants to hear that message? Who wants to be told that they're not good enough? Who wants to be told that that what they deserve is judgment? That they're not the masters of their own destiny? That though they like to think it, they're not independent beings. But in fact, they are dependent that they don't even exist apart from God's doing, much less be rescued from judgment by their own merit. Who wants to hear that? And so it stands the reason why our message is hated and why we are opposed as we proclaim it. And church, parenthetically, it's only going to get worse. Look at Europe, the birthplace of the Reformation. Look at the states of New England, the birthplace of our country, and the and the and the, the, the central place of where the second great awakening in America started. Except for a few witnesses, it is nearly gospelless. That's coming here. The longer mankind rejects the gospel the greater the animosity towards it and towards those who proclaim it. So what happened there is coming here. It's just a matter of time. We see it happening. We see it coming. It's just a matter of time. And our natural reaction to that as that begins to happen, sometimes our natural reaction to that is to withdraw and to isolate and to insulate ourselves from the opposition and from the attack. Sometimes that's done out of good motives to maintain purity and holiness, to ensure that our message is not compromised or influenced by the world. These are good motives. Sometimes it's done by wrong motives so that we don't have to do the hard things and so we can live a safe and comfortable life in our isolated lives. But church, we know that we are not called to that. And perhaps a different reaction to this is that if we're not going to isolate ourselves from the world, then perhaps we will find ourselves capitulating to it and compromising our message and emulating the world in an effort to make both ourselves and our message more appealing to the world. And so we compromise our convictions and we soften our message in order to make the gospel more palatable. And and we know that we're not called to that either. What we are called to is to take the gospel to the nations, to be His mouthpiece and His witnesses to the world. We are God's way of getting His gospel message to a lost world. We're His plan A and there is no plan B. He wants us to be His witnesses, to testify to the truth of this stuff. The church, which means all of us, not just the professionals, not just the elders, but all of us, as God gives us opportunity in our various lives and settings, The church has been mandated to proclaim his word boldly but accurately and faithfully without compromise and without softening it. And as things continue to get worse, some will even pay the ultimate price and be killed for being faithful witnesses. We see it happening in other parts of the world. And I think scripture points to the fact that one day it will happen here as well so why do we do it (laughs) if our message is so hated and we are so opposed why do we do it and how do we go about it and I think this passage gives us some answers to those questions I just want to draw out four of them in our remaining time first it's part of our identity it's part of who we are. We are witnesses. These two witnesses here are identified in three ways. First of all, they are two witnesses. Then we're told that they are two olive trees and two lampstands. We understand the language of witness, and we know that that refers to the church. Jesus said right before he ascended to heaven in Acts chapter one, verse eight, "But you will receive power." When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. No, he does not issue us a command there. He doesn't say, go be my witnesses. He says, you are my witnesses. You are. This is part of our identity. We are a witness. And as a witness, we are to witness to the gospel. But what about those other two phrases in verse 4? These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands stand before the Lord of the earth. That's from Zechariah chapter 4. In Zechariah chapter 4, you can go read that on your own time. Uh, The prophet Zechariah is given a vision of a golden lampstand. And that golden lampstand represented the lampstand that was in the tabernacle. At that time, all they had was the tabernacle. They didn't have the temple They had the the temporary um, uh, symbolization of the presence of God. So the the golden lampstand in Ezekiel's vision symbolically represented the lampstand that was in the temple where God met with his people. And so in that story, in Zechariah chapter 4, God was telling them, I'm going to build my temple in Jerusalem. And he tells them, go back and read it. He says, it's not going to be by might, it's not going to be by power, but it's going to be by the Spirit, says the Lord. He was going to accomplish all of this through them. But those two olive trees are also in that same vision in Zechariah chapter 4. There were two olive trees. One was on the right and one was on the left of the lampstand. And the two olive trees... Provided oil to the lampstand so that it would keep on burning and so that the light of that golden lampstand would never go out in that vision. And this represented that God's presence would never leave them and that the Holy Spirit, symbolized through the oil coming through those two olive trees, meant that the Holy Spirit would enable them to make this happen. What a beautiful picture of the church. God has likewise promised to build his church such that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As we talked about last week, the church is the temple of God. And so we are that lampstand symbolizing the presence of God in the world. Jesus says in John 8 that he is the light of the world. But he also says in the Sermon on the Mount that We are the light of the world. And so we, the church, those who have professed faith in Christ, we are the lampstand giving light to the world, representing the presence of God in a dark place, the presence of God among men. And then the Holy Spirit, in Zechariah's vision, represented by the olive trees providing oil to the lampstand, the Holy Spirit anoints us, equips us, prepares us, and authorizes us To do this important task of witnessing. So, the church, the point is, this is our identity. This is who we are. We are the lampstand, we are the witness in our world. As Jesus said of us in that passage from the Sermon on the Mount, as I alluded to earlier in Matthew 5, he says to his disciples and to us, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Don't withdraw. Don't isolate. But instead, put it on a stand so that it might give light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is who we are. We're not called to go and witness. We're called to be witnesses. We are a witness. Secondly, as a witness what is our message our message is God's Word in the case of these two witnesses what did they proclaim to what did they testify about well we're told that they're prophets prophets of God deliver the Word of God they said thus saith the Lord they're not given their own testimony they're given a testimony about God they're saying these are the words that God says to his people and church, God has spoken to us, and he has spoken to us in this book. And so our message that we are to proclaim as his witnesses is the word of God, which means that if we're going to do it, we need to know it, we need to read it, we need to understand it, and we need to proclaim it to those that God has put around us. But secondly, as witnesses here who give their testimony, they were testifying about their own experience with this God. God. And as Christ followers, we testify to how God saved sinners by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we couldn't and to die in our place on the cross. So our message is the word of God in general and in particular, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I think this is partially conveyed to us in this vision through the fire that comes out of their mouth. Again, as we said earlier, this this reminds us of the picture of Jesus in chapter 1 where we see the sword coming out of his mouth, which we said at that time was the word of God. But in this case, it's on fire. It's fire coming out of their mouth. And that fire that comes out of their mouth represents to us the judgment that awaits those who reject the gospel. And so as we give testimony to God's plans and god's word and god's gospel we can't soft sell it it's not our message to twist it's a message that's been given to us that we're simply called to be faithful to proclaim it's a message of judgment deserved because of sin but it's also a message of gospel hope because of christ's sacrificial death and resurrection third thing that we understand here is that our message is going to be opposed and so will we our message is opposed and the vision of the two witnesses their opposition comes from two sources the antichrist and the world around them the unbelieving world This is the first mention of the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. And it's interesting that John mentions this in a way that infers to us that his readers already understood what he was talking about. He talks about the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit. So there was already some teaching that they understood who he was talking about. And we're not going to cover a whole lot about the antichrist in this particular passage there's much more that is written about the antichrist in chapters 13 and 14 and then 18 through 20 and so we'll cover a lot more about him at that point but suffice it to say that we see here that he comes from the bottomless pit this is the abyss the 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 place of the dead it's the same place from which in chapter 9 the swarm of demons came out to attack god's people and the blowing of the fifth trumpet The Antichrist, as everything except for God is, is a created being. The only one who's not a created being is God himself. So this is a created being, and he is sent by and empowered by Satan. And his purpose is to stop the testimony of the church by killing it. And again, we'll learn a lot more about what all of this means as we continue through Revelation. But I think it's clear here at least that there will be a growing demonic opposition the nearer we get to the end. But the witnesses, the two witnesses here in this chapter 11 are also opposed by the unbelieving world. When the Antichrist kills the two witnesses in this this vision, the world revels in their shame and, and almost celebrates their demise. They refuse to let them be buried, which in the first century would have been the height of shame and indignity to not be buried they rejoice over them we're told that they they make merry and they exchange presents with one another they celebrate they're they're throwing a big party it's like Christmas to them and we're told why because their tormentors are dead apparently these two witnesses what they testified tormented them and now that torment is gone now, I don't think that as we symbolically refer this to the church that this means that we're supposed to make it our goal to torment our lost neighbors and coworkers, right? But I think it does mean that our message should be so clear and so biblical that as long as they reject it, it will torment them. It will torment them leads me to ask a very probing question. Do your lost neighbors and co-workers like you because you're a really nice person? Or are you a torment to them because your testimony to them of the gospel is a torment to them? Now, I know that's not a fair question because I recognize we're also called to be salt and light and a blessing to the world in which God placed us. But it does make us think, does the testimony of my life and the witness of my words torment the souls of the lost around me? Or does it not? Our message is opposed. And we, as its messengers, will also be opposed. And so if we're not opposed in any way, perhaps it's because we're either not delivering the message or the message that we're delivering doesn't torment fourth and finally from this passage we see that faithful witnesses will be vindicated faithful witnesses who do what they're told to do and proclaim this testimony will be vindicated the vindication in this vision is symbolized by the the resurrection of the two witnesses and their ascension to heaven in the clouds. We're told in verse 11 that a breath of life, after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet. This is an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 37, where Ezekiel is given a vision of a valley of dry bones. And as he looks out on that valley of dry bones, it's is a valley of death, a miracle happens. The breath of God blows into those bones and they come to life. And we're told that they stand up on their feet. Same words that we see here in Revelation 11. They become alive and they stand up on their feet. And here, John is linking this to the resurrection. Friend, the opposition that we face because of our message, because we proclaim a message that torments those who are lost, that opposition pales in comparison to the vindication that will be ours when Jesus returns again in glory. As we read from Romans chapter 8 last week, if God is for us, who can be against us? The opposition of today is of no consequence whatsoever in eternity because the victory was won at Calvary. In some cases, this opposition that we'll face will be ultimate, and some will give their lives and will be martyred because of their witness. But we know that that is not the end of the story for those martyrs, because they will be vindicated in the resurrection, which we will read about in chapter 20. But we also see this vindication symbolized when when the earth dwellers are judged afterwards, A tenth of the city falls. 7,000 people in Jerusalem die in an earthquake after this. And then we're told at the end of verse 13 that the rest, the rest were terrified. Those that weren't killed in the earthquake were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now some will look at that giving glory to the God of heaven, and we'll see in that a suggestion that perhaps they come to faith in Christ, that this is this is a reference to repentance and conversion. And while that's a possible understanding of that, I don't think it's likely. I do think that part of the purpose of the tribulations, the suffering on earth, and it being limited in scope to a, a fourth or, or a third and so forth, as we've seen. Part of that is to provide opportunity for repentance. But I don't think that's what we have here. What's happening here is right before the blowing of the seventh trumpet that we'll see in verse 15 next week. And the blowing of the seventh trumpet will mark the very end. There is no more opportunity for repentance now there is only judgment but church when sinners see a righteous display of God's judgment they will recognize God for who he is and they'll give him glory just as Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and what? Under the earth, in the abyss, place of the dead. Every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, one day God will be glorified By those who rejected him their entire life. Rejected his gospel, rejected his son. And did not recognize who he was until it was too late. But even then, they will give glory to God. At that point, they will see that they were wrong. And Jesus is the Lord. And while we don't rejoice in that that too is an indication to us, a reminder to us that no matter how bad it gets in the days ahead, no matter how much suffering comes, how much tribulation comes, how much persecution and how many of us and our children and our children's children are martyred for the faith, vindication awaits faithful witnesses. So church, may that be us. May we be faithful witnesses today boldly and faithfully giving testimony to the gospel no matter the cost that when both we and our message are opposed we know that our king has already won the battle the victory has already been secured and we're just given testimony to that victory until we see it with our own eyes in glory let's pray God, we thank you so much for the witness of your word this morning that reminds us of who we are. We are your witnesses. And as your witnesses, you've given us a job to take the gospel to the nations. Not as we would see fit, but as you tell us to. Boldly, clearly, faithfully, and biblically, and accurately. So God, would you move among us to do that as a church? Would you move among us as individual followers of Christ to do that in our own spheres of influence? Lord, in our neighborhood, in our workplaces, in in, in the community around us, Lord, you've placed us here as your witnesses, as your missionaries to reach the lost that you have divinely placed around us. God, would you break our hearts over the loss? Would you compel us to bring the good news of Jesus to those who are literally dying to hear it. Though they don't know it, and though they may oppose it, and though they may oppose us for bringing it to them, you've called us to be faithful. And so, Lord, do in us whatever you need to do to make that happen. And remind us, Lord, that we're on the winning side. And we have but but a few hours on the timeline of eternity to be faithful witnesses to the lost. And then you'll bring us home. We thank you for this good news, Father. We pray that, Lord, if there are those among us in this very room this morning who would say, in all honesty, that they stand apart from you. Maybe they are at the end of their rope and they don't know where to turn. Maybe they've been trying to please you and make themselves right before you all their lives. God, we pray that you would show them the folly of that effort and that the good news of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, come to earth who lived a perfect life and died in the place of sinners so that sinners like us might be rescued and redeemed through faith in jesus father pray that you would make that good news clear and accessible to the lost who may be among us this morning and we ask that you would give them the faith the trust in christ alone to be rescued that they too may be measured and marked out as your own and given a place beside you and with the rest of us in your eternal home. We thank you for this good news, Father. Now, send us out to be your witnesses until you bring us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.